Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, this is Season 5, Episode number 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I've got a fantastic episode for you today with Mr. Herman Ponser, PhD, evolutionary anthropologist from Duke University and author of the highly acclaimed new book, Burn. He and I will discuss today his first experiences working with the Hadza in Tanzania, how much movement hunter-gatherers actually get in a day, and if we actually ever get more efficient with walking over a lifetime. Herman will also discuss the evolutionary view of the role of the brain in regulating appetite, what the bounds are for our endurance performance, how many calories can you actually eat in one day or could one eat, and of course we'll also talk about the effect of gut microbiota on calorie use and a whole bunch more. So really fascinating discussion here with Herman today, a world expert in metabolism who also debunks a lot of the myths that we read about online. This episode is brought to you by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, practitioners, and anyone looking to upskill their performance nutrition knowledge. The challenge in real-world practice is navigating all the gray areas between the fundamentals you learn in your studies and the realities of real-world problems. So this course is an opportunity to bridge that gap and connect with leading experts in performance, live guest speakers, and a whole bunch more. Enrollment is open for our foundations course through April 25th. You can use the promo code SPRING2021. That's SPRING2021 and save $50 off. Also, our football performance nutrition course, which launched in March, is also open for enrollment if you'd like to onboard and get access to expert content from course authors Pratik Patel, Charles Ashford, and guest speaker Fergus Connolly, then you can onboard before the end of the month. Check out the full details at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. All right, let's do this season five, episode number four with Herman Ponser. Enjoy. Herman, appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me on. Listen, I'm excited to dive into your uh, terrific new book, Burn, all about your work in metabolism over the last 10, 20 years. How long has it been? Yeah, about 20 years now, okay. measuring calories. And that kicks off my first question is, is, what was the impetus for the book to write it now for you? Yeah, uh, well, it was a lot of things kind of came together. You know, we were at a good point in the research. We had been doing the, the, the work that really sparked, I think, you know, a lot of this interest, general interest in, in this kind of work, as well as my own research over the last 10 years started with this uh, hunter-gatherer project we did about 10 years ago with the Hadza in northern Tanzania. We can talk about that in a little bit. Sure. But a lot of that work kind of came to fruition and I worked with other populations as well. And I felt like we had a really good handle on this really interesting op observation, which is that our bodies are keeping total energy expenditures, you know, total calories burned per day, kind of in this narrow range. And you know, the next phase of this research is going to be years spent trying to figure out all the, the pieces there, the mechanisms by which that happens, by which the, the body adjusts. But we were at a good point. We, I think, made this observation in several human populations across several species. It was a good time in my life to write a book. 
uh, I thought it was something that I wanted to get out there. And so, yeah, just sort of set the record. There's also, I think, a proliferation. This might always be true. Maybe just anytime you pay attention, you notice this. Mm-hmm. But a real prolifer- pro- proliferation in books purportedly on metabolism. They didn't have a lot of metabolism <laughs> in them. So you felt that you should, uh, yeah, definitely yeah. set the record straight. And, you know, fascinating, obviously, your work in, in, in Tanzania. Can you and you share some great stories in the book, which is which makes it great to dive yeah. deep into the science, but then pull back and give a really nice picture. Could you walk us back to that first time that you're getting off the plane and you're going out to visit the hats? Like, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was uh, it, it was prolonged. The, the the lead up was really long, so it took us uh, about two or three years to get funding to even be able to do it. The reason we wanted to go measure total energy expenditures in a hunter gatherer population was that nobody had done it before. But what was funny was when we went, applied to get the, the funding from National Science Foundation to do it, they all the reviewers kind of all said the same thing, which is, well, who cares about this? How, how interesting is this going to be? You know, we know they're really physically active. So obviously they're going to burn tons of calories. And so, duh, you know, why even bother to do this? And so it took a while to get the funding, convince them that it was worth doing. And we, and we kind of agreed. We thought, yeah, they will have high expenditures, but that we want to see how high they are. And then it took years. It took literally a summer, me and Dave Reichlin just sweating it out in Dar es Salaam, getting permits. Because of course, to do this kind of thing ethically, you need to get permits from the national level all the way down to the regional level. Yep. And then finally, so you know, if, when we finally were in the Land Rover, packed up and of course that you know getting your land rover packed up and getting all the local stuff taken care of is its own adventure like going into the markets in arusha which is little the last city you get to not really a city less sort of big town little city you get to and in, in yeah. before you are off into the woods into the savannah you know that's its own adventure working with you know getting a, a tanzanian research assistant with us on board and, and yeah it was a whole trip but as you're finally rolling in to that first hadza camp it just really feels like, you know, like you're rolling onto the set of a movie or something like that. You can't, you know, it just feels kind of surreal. For sure. Um, you know, you're rolling in and, and they don't know you're coming because there's no way to, to get a hold of them ahead of time. There's no, you know, cell phone service out there hardly. Yeah. Certainly 10 years ago, there wasn't any. And you just kind of show up and you show up in the middle of this wonderful camp of kids running around laughing and smiling and adults kind of hanging out and, you know, grass huts and, and people coming back from hunting or coming back from, from foraging. And yeah, it just sort of feels, you just feel like you walked onto the set of a movie almost. Like it just seems so different. And that's, that's the initial reaction I think a lot of people have. Certainly the initial reaction I had. Well, definitely when you get into nature like that, I mean, I've only experienced that sort of backpacking and things like that, where you get to, you know, some great stories with the different insects and, and, and animals and everything else. Now, as you know, better than anybody, calories are king and, and the currency in the body. And, you know, you talk about how the heads that do a lot of walking. I like the excerpt where I think at the time was that your, your supervisor was saying, we, we don't have to say when they're walking because we'll just assume they're always walking how much they walk, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah. But you were saying how women cover about five miles and men cover eight and a half, more or less, miles per day. But then you also write how we don't actually get more efficient with walking for a lifetime. Can you explain that? Yeah. So it's this this funny sort of constellation of observations. They walk a lot. And they're not just walking. They're also picking berries or digging up tubers or hunting game or climbing trees to get wild honey. So they do a ton of physical activity. If you actually measure, so one of the things we did is we, we, we brought out two systems to measure energy expenditures while we were there. One was this stuff called doubly labeled water, which is this isotope enriched water that we can mm-hmm. use to, to get 24 hour expenditures, um, total calories burned. And that gives you about a sort of a week long snapshot or 10 day snapshot of, of calories per day. We also brought out this, um, 
briefcase kind of style uh, portable respirometry system from Cosmed. So it was state of the art at the time, and they it's fantastic stuff. And it's, you wear a little mask, and that hooks up to this chest harness thing, and it weighs a couple pounds, and and it's little a little um, wearable laboratory basically and it's measuring but the mask you're measuring um, oxygen consumed and, and co2 produced um, and so you know we can measure the energy cost of different activities and so we we've done a few activities now but at the time we, we were doing walking because we wanted to know do you get more efficient like yes do you, do you get more efficient if you spend your life walking yeah 100%. and the answer is no um <laughs> they, they burn about 50 you know you have, you have to correct for body size with these things big people spend more energy just to walk because they're big and they're moving a lot of, of body weight Yep. Um, but even after you correct for that body, because they, they tend to be smaller bodied, right? So just on in pure calories, they actually spend fewer calories than the typical American because they're just smaller. But once you account for body size, it's the same. Yeah. I was going to say, and then what happens when we start to run? Because obviously, you know, every, whether it's the London Marathon, the New York Marathon, yeah. trying to get fit, we're trying to burn calories. We're trying to obviously have all yeah. the health implications, but we also work on our form, right? We want to be able to improve our form. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure that has... So some benefits, but in terms of this energy expenditure piece, can you talk about what may or may not be happening there? Yeah. So it turns out the training doesn't have a big effect on running economy either. So we're talking specifically here about the energy you burn per kilometer or per mile or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, walking, you can spend your whole life walking. You don't really get any more efficient at it. You can spend your whole life running and you don't really get much more efficient at it. There's in fact, if people, people have done like the training, you know, the, the training studies on this to see if you get somebody who doesn't run much, but a little and get them running more and more and more. Can you measure any small effects of the economy, any small changes? And the answer is usually there's nothing. And, at, you know, the biggest effect sizes anybody has published is about 4%, you know, 4% more economical, 4% fewer calories per kilometer after, you know, six, six or eight months of training. So it just isn't really a big effect. In fact, I think I think the jury's out on whether there's any effect there at all. You can run with your arms across your chest and it hardly has any effect on, on energy economy. So, you know, if the, all this stuff about form and, and practice, what you're really training is your endurance, which is a different thing than how many calories you're burning. You're just kind of training how long you can keep up a certain level of intensity for. And at the tip of the spear, Herman, like at the elite level, is that mm -hmm. still going to matter then, that exercise economy piece? Or are we starting to think that that's not actually making that much yeah. of a difference? Well, I mean, sure. If you're talking about, you know, the difference between, you know, a, a 210 marathon and a 211 marathon, well, that's, you know, less than a percent difference, right? So yeah. theoretically there, it could absolutely matter. There's a great, you know, if you have, if you've read the Alex Hutchinson book, Endure, and mm -hmm. he kind of breaks down, you know, all the different components of, of, of trying to trying to run a sub two marathon. It's one of the pieces he talks about in the book. It, yeah, economy is going to be a piece of that. But for, you know, the 98% of us, yeah, yeah, even at the pretty darn high end level, um, and certainly those of us in the middle of the pack, it just isn't a big effect. And and what's going on when we talk about some of the you know these days running mar ultra marathons is, is becoming more and more popular. Seeming with, uh, I've got a lot of midlife dads and clients who are <laughs> taking it up and, and you know losing a, a lot of weight, and we, we naturally think that this is due to the you know the, the energy expenditure piece. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick review of basal metabolic rate and, and how this whole story starts to interconnect and you know, what are we actually seeing in these people who are losing weight? Yeah, that's right. So, so for me, it starts with that Hadza study again. So we went out, we measured these folks, total energy expenditures with a Hadza, really physically active, and yet they're burning the same number of calories every day as men and women in the U.S. Um, and that's after you correct for body size. Okay. So a really physically active population don't burn more calories per day. 
We've seen this again and again in other populations around, uh, other human populations around the globe. We see this in animals. So this is a, a, a pretty strongly observed phenomenon that activity level does not dictate how many calories you burn per day. Yeah. Now that's a different question than if, if you know, if your midlife dad decides to start <laughs> an exercise program, right? Yeah. Is he going to burn more calories six months from now than he was when he started? And the answer on there is it kind of matter. It, it, it's a, it's, it's not clear entirely. You might, so you start that exercise program for a while. You're, you're burning more calories because you're exercising more and your body's not adjusted to it yet. After you adjust to it, and that takes a couple of months, you're going to start, your, your body's going to start kind of dialing back other expenditure mm -hmm. on other physiological activity. So there's a lot that your body does that you don't ever even know about. It happens, you know, underneath the hood. For sure. And, you know, that, that gets dialed back. And so at the end of six months, you know, maybe that guy's burning a few more calories a day, maybe no more calories a day. We see both of those outcomes in exercise, longitudinal exercise studies. In any case, he won't be burning as many calories as you'd expect based on, you know, oh, I added 200 calories a day to my, to my life of, in yeah. exercise. You're not going to see 200 calories a day more in six months. Your body will have eaten some of that up, maybe all of that up by these adjustments. And so that means that any, yeah, any weight loss he sees, he's either going to see very early on in the beginning. Mm -hmm. when he's still expending more because he hasn't adjusted yet. Yeah. Or, and, or if he is mm -hmm. able to maintain a, a bit of a higher expenditure, his body's going to adjust by eating more and he mm -hmm. won't see, you know, so, so that's, I think that's a lot of people experience. You start a new exercise program, you see great results for a few weeks in terms of weight loss. Mm -hmm. And then you might continue to see other great results. You should still keep doing it but the weight loss goes away as your body adjusts. Yeah. Can you speak to kind of the evolutionary mechanism there? Like it sort of seems unfair today when a lot of people, you know, <laughs> two thirds of the population are overweight or obese. You've got all these metabolic conditions and chronic yeah. diseases of lifestyle. And, and yet, you know, obviously our, we've got this, I wouldn't say hangover, but it's, you know, from our evolutionary past, can you talk about, uh, talk about the, the yeah, why yeah. is that? Also energy expenditure is about all the things your body's doing all the time. And most of that we're not even aware of. So, you know, your brain runs a 5K every day, right? Your brain burns 300 calories a day just doing its job. And your liver burns a lot. Of so your body's doing a lot of things. And all the energy that your body's burning is not to like make sure that you have a beach ready body for June or, you know, or even to keep you healthy necessarily. You know, all of your body's systems are tuned and calibrated to be really good at taking energy from your environment in terms of food and channeling that into survival and reproduction, right? That's really what everything that, that that's how evolution shapes any organism, including us. And so your body should be really good then. And we'd expect this for any organism. We see it in all kinds of species at taking as much energy as it can, basically, as it can dependably get and using it all, uh, but not using any more, right? Not using extra. Yeah. And so balance, you want right? to, your body's going to try to like meet that intake and expenditure piece really perfectly. And it usually does a pretty good job. Yeah, it is incredible. And you know, we talk about calculating these, you know, RMRs for whether it's athletes or clients, and we hear a lot about whether somebody has a fast or slow metabolism, you know, how much are we actually changing over that, that RMR measure, depending on if someone's naturally leaner or naturally more heavier set? Yeah, well, I so body size is the biggest predictor of how many calories you burn, because it's, you know, again, it's all the systems in your body at work, that's your metabolism, Yeah, where we can kind of control the activity piece of that, but we can't control all of it, because it's all of us, you know, your liver isn't under your control. <laughs> For example, and so bigger people, there's more of you, and you burn more calories. Smaller people burn few, fewer calories. Even after you account for body size uh, and age and anything, anything like that, you're still going to see people who, you know, you know, you and I, maybe similar age, similar size, 
but it wouldn't be a, a surprise to anybody if you burned 200 calories more a day than I did or, or vice versa, or even 300 calories difference, right? There's just that much variability in metabolic rates. And it's not tied to lifestyle in any obvious way, right? There's actually a lot of variances that we just can't explain. What's interesting is if people, so if we measure, if we were to ask you, do you have a faster, slow metabolism? Yeah. yeah you might have an answer to that. If we get you into the lab and measure it, I, you know, the odds that your experience of if you think you have a faster metabolism or not actually matches if you do have a fast metabolism. It's not very good. Not a, not a very good likelihood there. Because, you know, when people say I have a fast metabolism, they usually mean I can eat whatever I want. I don't get, I don't feel like I, I gain weight. Mm. Or if I have a slow metabolism, oh, I feel like no matter what I do, I gain weight. And that's a different question than how many calories you burn every day. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, in terms of when we talk about, appetite regulation. I mean, if we shift gears to the brain, I mean, certainly this is having an effect of people who are feel more satiated and actually they feel like they're eating whatever they want, but they're actually not feeding that many opportunities in a day versus somebody else. Yeah. Can you speak to the brain's role there uh, in terms of appetite regulation and, and perhaps from an evolutionary standpoint as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so again, your brain is really good at matching calories in the calories out. And, you know, the, the systems that do that are, are pretty well known uh, at some level now we're kind of learning more all the time but obesity getting overweight and obese is usually an issue sort of a creeping regulation issue where you're just a little bit off mm-hmm. and we're talking like less than a ten, you know like a tenth of a percent off like tiny amounts wow a little bit off in terms of intake versus expenditure on average and so you gain a couple pounds a year well you gain a couple pounds a year you go from being a healthy weight 20 year old to being an overweight or obese 40 year old i mean that's that is the American global, that's the American obesity epidemic. And I think it's becoming the, the global epidemic, right? Absolutely. And so this is a brain regulation issue. And, you know, the evidence for that is, is sort of the way that, that it develops. But also, for example, if you look at the, at the genetics of obesity, so people have, you know, I think that there, this isn't work that my lab does, but people who work on uh, genetic variants and uh, the genetics of obesity, there's almost a thousand different genes who, you know, depending oh. on which variant you have of this gene or that gene affects your likelihood of, of becoming obese. And all of those genes, with few exceptions, are most active in your brain, right? Interesting. So it's not your liver, it's not your muscles, it's not your fat cells, it's not, no, it's your brain. And it's because those, that, that's where the, the rubber hits the road. How well do you track and, and match intake to expenditure? Yeah, and you talk about in the book, you know, the heads obviously with you know, getting honey or getting a piece of fruit yeah. was pretty exciting, you know, to get that sweet taste out in nature isn't something that you normally stumble upon. And so it always brings me back. Actually, there's a, I'm over here in the UK, there was a picture of the beach on a hot day in 1976. And everybody's out there. And of course, everybody looks sort of slim or normal BMI. And then just recently, it was a, last year, it was a really hot day, same picture. And again, you know, you're up to 50 60%. So when we talk about this, this food environment, and, and, and that evolutionary hangover of wanting yeah. to keep eating. I mean, how can we resolve this when, just as you mentioned, where we, it looks like it's becoming a global, global issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, you know, we just talked about how the genetics are involved, but of course the genetics, the gene pool hasn't changed from that picture of the 1950s to today, right? The genetics changes, gene pools change much more slowly. So it's obviously a change of the environment and and it's the food environment. I think all evidence points to it's the food environment. And and the big problem is, well, it's probably a lot of things, but if you had to point your finger at one thing, it's this predominance ultra processed foods, right? These engineered combinations of salty, sweet, right? Mm. Fatty, crisp, you know, it's this, this melange of 
flavors and textures that our bodies, your brains are never evolved to experience, Light right? Up. A Hadza man, a woman never experiences a Domino's pizza or a <laughs> fried ice cream or, you know, a, a deep fried Snickers bar or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, imp it, it just completely overreacts, right? It's the reward systems go, go crazy. And, and it's, it's, people have shown us it's, it's basically similar to addiction, right? It's, it's similar in that in your, in response to addiction and, and you overeat because you're, it's engineered to make you overeat. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. I mean, over here in the UK, Canada, the U S I mean, it's more than 50% of everything we buy is ultra processed food. Yes. Um, and I find over here, I mean, you take a train to Paris, it's two hours away and all of a sudden it's 14%, you know, you wow, go is really that low? Yeah, you I go didn't around the Mediterranean, that, I, yeah. like 16%. Yeah. And so even when I hear about, you know, the Mediterranean diet, obviously sort of like the quote unquote gold standard of, of healthy diets, if you will, but it seems like the theme, of course, across all these different countries is, is just, they're eating more real food, right? Yeah, that's absolutely it. And, you know, I think in some ways that's a story we've heard before. But I think, you know, what I try to do in the book and what I think, you know, hopefully more recent research is kind of pointing out is that really is the nub of it, you know, because what happens is we say, oh, it's ultra processed food and Coca-Cola says, oh, sure, sure, sure. But you better make sure you exercise too. And it might also be that, oh, it's carbs, not fats or it's fats, not carbs. And all this kind of smoke screen, screen stuff goes up, mm -hmm. right? To obscure what is a pretty simple message, which is these engineered foods that are literally engineered this is how they know they're doing a good job is you overeat them right that's what we're surrounded with so um if you had to do one thing if you could wave your magic wand it would get rid of those processed foods yeah 100 percent. and if we circle back to your book and the benefits of exercise you know you go through obviously the metabolism and you're talking about how there's not this big effect but obviously you you, you pump the brakes to everyone and say look it doesn't mean you can't exercise um, or you shouldn't exercise rather and yeah. you, know, you talk about the, the benefits can you just revisit some of the, the benefits as, as it relates to metabolism oh. and, and healthy weight yeah sure 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 um so yeah that's right so just because um, exercise by itself isn't a great tool for weight loss um, and might not even get your daily energy expenditure to change very much because your body makes those adjustments that's actually those adjustments are actually what's good for you or part, part of what's so good for you so we can we can first of all say that there are a lot of benefits of exercise that have nothing to do with the calories burned, right? That have nothing to do with, with calories at all. So stronger muscles, uh, sharper mind, right? Uh, better immune function, getting outside. If you're exercising, out, there's, there's, there's mood effects, right? So sure. there's all these great effects that have nothing to do with calories and you should exercise. If it was only that, you should exercise for those alone. But the calorie stuff is actually really exciting because it turns out that all those calories you burn on exercise, the big effect is that those are calories that are taken away from other functions. That's the way you can think about it, right? So if you spend a lot of energy on, on exercise, your body's going to spend less energy on inflammation. It's going to spend less energy on stress reactivity. Uh, we think it's going to help keep your reproductive hormones in a sort of safer, at a safer range. And so, you know, those are all really good things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, just adds to why, in other words, the metabolic adjustments don't take away from why you should exercise, they actually add to why you should exercise. Yeah, it's amazing how it, you know, as you say in the book, it impacts every, every part of the body, there's nothing yeah. that goes untouched. And whether it's mental health, physical health, all these things are, are yeah. paramount. But if we actually circle back to that elite athlete question, what I, mm. I really found fascinating was when you start talking about metabolic scope in the book, and you know, the boundaries of human endurance performance, how fast, how fast can we go? How many calories? Can we actually burn? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, there's a couple pieces of that. One is if you, as you push against 
you know, if you push your body too hard for too long, then you start taking energy away, you know, from things that you need to do, right? So we just talked about how if you take energy away from things that you shouldn't be doing anyway, like inflammation, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you're going to be spending so much energy on exercise that you won't have any energy left for the stuff you actually need to do. And that leads to things like overtraining syndrome or um, relative energy deficiency syndrome, REDS, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, there are bad things that come of this eventually if you push too far. So, so how far is too far, right? And uh, we had a really fun time doing an, a study once we, we had people running from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., a marathon a day for five months, totally wow. impressive. Um, and we measured their <laughs> energy expenditures. And they were really, really high. And so we had a really fun time doing that project. And I thought, gosh, this helps. This, maybe this is kind of relevant to this question of how far can you push yourself? Or if energy expenditure is constrained, how constrained is it? And how long can you break the rules? And so yeah, I, I took those edge. data and uh, put them in the context of, of, a, of, of, of a full data set that had things from like, you know, the Kona Ironman half, Kona, Kona Triathlon, Western States 100, Tour de France, right? Uh, pregnancy, which is also this really long lasting, high intensity thing, right? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Requires and calories. You can, yeah. And you, <laughs> you can map out the kind of the ceiling of, of human metabolic expenditure, right? So you can push above that constrained ceiling for a while and do something like the Tour de France. Yeah. The higher you push, the shorter you can go, right? You know, it's, it's kind of like sprinting versus running a mile. Like if you go really, really fast, you can only go for a few seconds. For if sure. you If you push your energy expenditure to 10,000 calories a day, you can really only do that for a couple of days. And then, you know, you can do the Tour de France at like, I think it's like 7,000 calories. You can do that for a month, yeah. right? These guys who ran a marathon a day, they did that for five months. That's like 4,000, 5,000 calories a day. I'm sorry, 5,000 calories a day. Anyway, so that, that's the ceiling. So you can actually map out the ceiling of what the human body can do. And as you push up against that, that's when you start to run into trouble. And that's something, you know, we heard all about Michael Phelps and the Olympics and yeah. Yeah, 10,000, yeah. 12,000 calories, these things take on like mythological sort of, uh, they spread like that. And, and yeah, is someone actually eating that much? You know, how much can we consume to really push that threshold? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we think that one of the things that came out of that, that study where people ran from Los Angeles to, to Washington, DC, and we put all this data together from other studies too. We think the body's limit to getting energy in effectively right? Not just put it in your mouth, but, but getting those nutrients into your bloodstream. We think that the limit there is about four to 5,000 calories a day for people that mm -hmm. we, we put it at about two and a half times your basal metabolic rate, so, which for most of us is about four to 5,000 calories a day. Um, if you're bigger, you know, maybe you can go, maybe, then your level is going to be higher because your whole system is going to be larger, right? And smaller might be smaller. The whole Michael Phelps thing, he might be burning 10,000 calories a day for a couple of days in a row if he's, you know, really pushing it. Yeah, I don't think he's eating that many calories a day. And that it turns out what's funny is the 12,000 calorie a day thing ended up being a bluff anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 we don't really know how many calories a day Michael Phelps can eat, but we should study it. It'd be great if he wants to, to come to the lab, we'll, we'll check him out. Yeah, no, it is, it is fascinating. And, you know, you talk about how, yeah, that two and a half times basal metabolic rate is, is sort of the number, right? That's terrific. And when we look at, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to circle back on was you talk about uh, your time in the Hadza and then. And foraging, you know, spending time getting your food. You know, years ago I worked in the south of France, and just to watch the chefs actually make everything from scratch, they're actually moving around quite a bit versus just dropping yeah. the ready-made pasta into the boiling water like we might do in the, in North America. And you talk about you know rates of what about the heads of adults are roughly a thousand to fifteen hundred calories per hour foraging, and yeah. some of the other foraging farming societies about fifteen hundred to two thousand 
Can you talk about just the, the amount of energy it requires to just go find your food every day and implications yeah. for health? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, obviously it's a lot of energy. They're spending a really large portion of their daily calories just on moving to go and get food, you know? Uh, and, and, and they, you know, they, they don't go hungry, right? I mean, for one thing they share, which is this interesting, unique human uh, strategy, right? No other animal does the kind of sharing that we do. There's certainly no other primate shares like we share. And so there's kind of a real beauty to that, that, you know, the kind of sharing that you and I take for granted growing up, going to birthday parties or barbecues or whatever, right? Or sharing lunch mm. at work. Like that's actually a, a uniquely human thing that, that kind of unites all of us. Anyway, that's kind of on a tangent, but I, I just love that about our species that we're this kind of sharing species. hundred um, percent. Need now, to get when back to more and, of that with politics and everything. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, so it's, it's funny, like, right? Because- You gotta remember we, that part of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we're really good at being, at sharing and being nice to our group. Now, who's our group? that's where it gets tricky. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're often trained, you grow up, you know, your family's your group, obviously, in your school, maybe in your neighborhood or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. your sports team, you know, I don't know who you, you mm -hmm. root for. Obviously, when the Olympics come on this summer, mm -hmm. right, you'll be rooting for the Maple Leaf, and uh, I'll be rooting for the Stars <laughs> and Stripes, you know, and that's sure. how it goes. Or maybe you're maybe you've changed allegiances. Have you changed? No, 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 I still, uh, Still working for Canada basketball, so I got to stay. Uh... Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. You know, so it's like, who do you root for? Who Who is your group? And all of that comes back to why do we do that? Like, that's a weird thing to do. Why do we get so worried about why do I feel bad if the Steelers lose? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, why, yeah, yeah, why should yeah. I care if 11 guys, 22 guys in Pittsburgh have a bad day at work? Yeah. But I do because they're, they're my tribe. They're my group. You know, yeah. that's how I was raised. I kind of can't shake it. Actually. It's really hard to get rid of that, you know? Um, and all that group membership comes back. It's, it's all because we are, a that, that your group membership is so important because that's who you share with who then fundamentally that's who you share food with. Right. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was going to take a tangent there and just talk about, you know, obviously with technology today, we seem to be pitting the, the tribalism, you know, mm. of like the others seem to be more prevalent. I don't know if you have any the thoughts well, on uh, yeah 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 i mean i think a, a few things there one is you know politics has always been about how you define us versus them right and mm -hmm. i think you know if, if anything politicians have gotten better and better and better at tweaking us like that i mean everything isn't it crazy it, I, I don't know if this is true in the uk as much as it is here you know brexit versus remain and uh you know leave versus stay or if it's you know, in the us everything every decision every whether you wear a mask to prevent COVID, right? Became this issue well, of, well, are you more Democrat or Republican, mm -hmm. right? And and that's because of, are you my group or are you the other group? And so everything gets colored like that. It's really dangerous. It's kind of, kind of uh, it's not health, healthy. And I think online, well, online, like, first of all, there's no, there's no penalty, right? Yeah. To stand up and shake your finger and yell at somebody. Well, you have an anonymous ID on Twitter or whatever, and nobody's going to come and, you know, so that's, it's the, there's no cost at all yeah. to, to, to yelling at somebody. And it also is like, you could, you could have the most niche, weird, maybe even harmful, toxic identity. And, and that's who, what you think. And you're going to find a million other people just like you online. <laughs> so no matter how bad it is. Finding your tribe. Yeah, there's always a tribe. Uh, and, and I don't know that that's a helpful thing or not, but. I mean, I don't know. Ho hopefully it also still goes the hopefully other way. Hopefully we'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but circling back to the foraging question, the, the yeah, calories, sorry. I, I know we're just, <laughs> love a good tangent, but the, the cost of a calorie today 
yeah. versus even 100 years ago in North America yeah. versus, yeah. Yeah. you know, if you go back to these populations, can you share some? Yeah, there? yeah, right. So so um, they go out and they spend a lot of their energy foraging. And, you know, you can think about this in different ways, but a, for, a, a hunter-gatherer can get between 1,000 and 2,000 calories an hour, depending on what they're going after and if it's a good day. But that's, that's the ballpark. Let's say 1,500 calories an hour just as an average. The, the, the typical blue-collar worker here in the States, not at, working a special job, a median income job, uh, in manufacturing could take the, the wages from an hour's work and go buy 20,000 calories of food easily. I mean, we're talking like 20,000 calories of like a normal stuff you might put in the refrigerator, not something, not something weird or crazy. Mm-hmm. 20,000 calories of normal food. So you go from a context where food is actually kind of hard to get 1500 calories an hour to 20,000 calories an hour. And now you're just, you know, even if you don't experience it this way, it is nonetheless true that you are swimming in calories all yeah. the time, you know, making it that much harder to make good decisions about what you eat. Absolutely. And one of the areas, you know, we see when people are consuming ultra processed food, all the bacteria in the gut, the gut yeah. microbiota start to shift. And Nick West out in Australia talked to me about some research around the calories that these gut bacteria produce. And some people mm. can be more, some people can be less, you know, what are your thoughts on the, the effects of that? And, and is that might that be significantly different between those hunter gatherers? I, I would presume compared to someone who's obese in the you know typical standard. Yeah, setting. it could be. Um, we know that there are microbiome differences for sure. Some of that's been work's been published for the Hadza, for example, the group I, I've worked with. I, I think it is an open question. It's something we're actually trying to look into uh, how much sort of how many of those calories that otherwise are just sort of passed through you are your microbiome bacteria able to, to scavenge and turn into short chain fatty acids from your fiber or whatever, and, and get into your bloodstream. God, that'd be really exciting to know. I don't think we know yet, but um, I, I agree. We need to get that sorted out. It's, it's a big area to look at next. Awesome. And yeah, I imagine with the Hudson, what's the fiber intake like with that group? Uh, 50, 60, 70, or is it more than that? Uh, we, we think it could be 80 grams a day. Um, wow. Does that sound right? Do I have the I think they have that yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. We struggle to get 30 in North America. <laughs> yeah. Get, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. So they, they actually, they eat this really, really fibrous, fibrous tubers and they eat them, but they, they're so fibrous that you don't usually just eat it. You usually like chew it and suck all the starch out of it. Mm-hmm. And then you spit out the quid. Yeah. And so somebody's dissertation someday is going to be going around collecting <laughs> quids and figuring out exactly how much, because, you know, obviously it looks like you spit out all the fiber, but there's no way you do. You, you you, know, you end up breaking so, so, it down and chewing. Yeah. You, you eat a lot of fiber that way, but how much? That's a bit of an estimate. So, it's like baseball players chewing tobacco, <laughs> although much healthier yeah. version. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, if we kind of zoom out again and, and talk today, obviously we hear a lot about plant-based versus animal-based, and in different hunter-gatherer societies, you know, you write about yeah. how there's a lot of misnomers around the diets and actually how those diets change based on latitude. Can you speak to that? So oh sure. So. It? Yeah. One of the funniest things I think doing this kind of work, you know, being someone who gets, has the privilege to actually go and work with hunter gatherers mm. is to be told by uh, people on Twitter, how hunter gatherers eat. I always find that really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were to just pay attention to Twitter, you would find out that, uh, you know, hunter gatherers eat only meat all the time. And that's mm. all, you know, uh, but that's that, that, that version of a paleo diet or something isn't actually what we see at all. hunter-gatherer diets are really pretty balanced between plants and animals and more than that they they really vary over time so you know day to day week to week even year to year 
there can be really big shifts in the calories you're getting from plants versus from animals versus from honey. Honey is actually a really big contributor of calories for the Hadza and other tropical groups, um, even temperate populations. Um, it's not until you get you know into the Arctic, you know, well above 50 degrees latitude, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that you see people who are really heavily meat based. And you know, most of us aren't from there. You know, the there yeah, are some folks who are, population. but. Uh, yeah, most not. Even even uh, this is another one I, I just saw on Twitter. Somebody said, "Oh, I, I pointed this out to someone," and they said, "Oh, but so you mean that my Northern European ancestors were eating eighty percent meat? Cool." And I thought, "Well, okay, actually, your Northern European ancestors got there about five thousand years ago from a group called the Yamnaya, which are hanging out on the steppe in southern Kazakhstan and and uh, that part of Central Asia." And so actually they were eating plenty of plants and everything. And they came in and, and displaced a bunch of hunter-gatherer groups there. So, you know, th- this whole question about your identity and where you're actually from, very, very few of us are from, you know, a, a very far North population. Some people are, but very, yeah. very few. And, you know, you, you also talk about the genetic adaptations of, we would think that these individuals would be more yeah. ketogenic with a, with a protein and a really high fat diet. Um, yeah. But there are some, you know, evolutionary uh, shifts that 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 occur that yeah. would be not the direction you would you would think, right? That's right. Yeah. The, the in um, in the Inuit and other uh, first na- you know First Nations people that we see in the Arctic, you know, who who really have been have been there for as far as we can tell for six seven thousand years. There have actually been really strong selection on the the pathway that allows you to turn. So so you make ketones when you are breaking down fatty acids predominantly for your energy. And so what happens is one of the molecules that gets kicked out of that pathway is a, is a ketone body and your body can use those, can use ketones for energy. But there's a whole set of pathways that, that, that have to happen for that ketone body to get kicked out. And one of the enzymes that's, that's critical for that in that pathway is actually there's selection against the gene that makes that enzyme, uh, against the form of the gene that makes that enzyme. So they actually can't make, they can't go into ketosis, a lot of these groups, even though they are the the poster child for the ketogenic diet. Yeah, and from an evolutionary standpoint, is, is obviously some type of protective mechanism there, yeah. or what would you speculate? So somebody pointed out uh, to me and that it might not be about the ketones exactly, that there might be some other role that that enzyme plays. And so I don't, I don't think that we know exactly what's going on there. If it's, you know, is this selection that happened because of ketosis and ketogenesis specifically, or as a byproduct of something else? So I think the jury is still out. I don't want to speculate too much. Yeah. But I would say that, what you, what you can say is that here is a population that had that was all set up to be the perfect ketogenic population. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that wasn't a strong enough draw to to, to maintain ketogenic ability there, right? They, they actually yeah. got pushed away. Yeah, no, it is, it is fascinating. And, you know, you touched on this earlier, but in terms of some of your work now, in terms of the things that you're investigating, you yeah. know, down this path of metabolism, you touched on um, more work with the Hadza. What are some questions that you're really trying to answer now? Yeah, uh, what I think the next horizon for us is to do some, it's going to be hard work, but do the uh, the long-term studies, you know, the year-long or even longer studies where we get people who are relatively sedentary, get them exercising mm-hmm. and watch uh, all the other physiological systems change in response to that exercise and see what gets turned down and how much and what that mechanism is. There's a lot of work to get done there um, because right now I think you know that's that's that mechanism we don't have pinned down as well as I'd like. Mm-hmm. I think there's questions too in terms of how this you know these kind of constraints on metabolism affect 
things like uh, you know growth, reproduction, uh, how well we age. I think there's sort of life history questions to be addressed there. So that would be fun. Yeah. And um, you know, I'm an I'm an anthropologist, so hopefully we'll get to to do more of this in some more fun places and, and learn more. I think, you know, just just to do the basic exploratory science of saying, wow, we no, nobody's worked with this community before. Let's yeah. let's work with them and see what they have, you know, what we have to learn from them. Uh, so hopefully, there's more of that coming up soon too. Oh, that's incredible! And uh, you know, just wrapping things up here, I want to respect your time. Again, so many great stories in your book, and you talk about obviously the sharing being being one of them. Um, yeah. you, you talk about one of the children as well, a, a pair of children that go off to a school and then, you know, decide <laughs> they don't like it and they just come back through the yeah. you know, lion infested. Could you just touch on in all your experiences there from that human level, some of the, the things that you learned in, in interacting with the Hadza? Well, I think, you know, the first thing you're knocked over with when you go to work with the Hadza is just you know, I think like I started off saying, it's so, so surreal, you know, it feels so different. And then after there a few weeks, you kind of get into the pace of life there. You just begin to realize that actually, you know, people are people the same mm-hmm. all over the place. So the kids are running around and I've got little kids, nine and six years old. And so I go to a Hadza camp and I see those kids running around. And I think, oh, it's just like home. You know, they're just like yeah. my kids running around the backyard. Husbands and wives are like talking like, you know, well, well who knows what, you know, the same kind of stuff. Women are arguing, men are, <laughs> men are arguing and uh, are telling jokes or whatever. It, it's just, um, I think that's what I come away with is that even though, you know, the cultural sort of facade, the, the cultural layer of it is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the language is different. The, you know, the clothes are different. The food is different. We're all just sort of all the same people, you know, just right beneath the surface there. And I think that's what I walk away with with all this stuff. But the kids are amazing because I tell you what, you grow up quick uh, in a lot of ways out there. Those kids could, you know, could walk without trails or a compass or a map. They wouldn't think twice about heading over the horizon towards the camp. They knew it was over there. They, they, they by dead reckoning and figure it out. I mean, yeah. five, seven years old, uh, they're already walking two kilometers out to get water and two kilometers back, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing the skills that you can build when the, yeah. when that's your environment. Armin, I really appreciate you carving out some time today. Uh, phenomenal book, Burn um, the, the Deep Science, but of course, you know the great uh, frame of reference with the, with the stories and whatnot. So appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can watch the full video on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. You'll find clips of this and past PNP episodes. A quick reminder, the Foundations of Performance Nutrition course brought to you by Athlete Evolution is enrolling students until April 25th. What are experts saying about the course? Zach Kerlau-Provo, performance chef of the NBA's Orlando Magic says, the Foundation course is a must. It helped me look at performance through a different lens and made me a better practitioner better coach and better teammate to the staff I work with. Use the promo code SPRING2021, that's SPRING2021, to save $50 and on board with the group. Lastly, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It's a tremendous help to the show. Thank you, and see you next time. 
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.